Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Don't forget to check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis. And it's where you can find details of our membership model. Simply go to AmericanPurpose.com forward slash join. Coming up on the show today, Giles Tremnett, the Guardian's Madrid correspondent and author of the new book, España, A Brief History of Spain. Uh, Giles, welcome to Bookstack. Well, it's very nice to be talking to you from, uh, from Madrid, Spain at this very moment. And congratulations on the book. Um, as well as being a long-standing correspondent in Spain, you're also a newly minted Spanish citizen, you say in the introduction. Um, so you come at this book with, you say, the enthusiasm of the convert. Indeed. Um, I like to sort of lay my cards out before at the beginning of each of, each of my books. Um, Yes, I have the enthusiasm of a convert, um, but I also have the um, uh, the experience of someone who's actually lived in Spain for thirty years. So, um, so this isn't just a kind of newbie's take on on Spain by any means. But um, let's say that that um, uh, enthusiasm is informed by um, decades of of living in what is now my my homeland. And it's, it seems to me that one of the things that you try to draw out in the book are the, are the paradoxes of that life in the new homeland. And, and you start with a, with, a, with a wonderful image of the World Cup in 2010, the year that Spain won that competition, um, and how struck people were by the fact that the Spanish players weren't singing the national anthem. They, they appeared to be humming it. For the very good reason, you point out that the Spanish anthem actually has no words, and that tells us a lot about the history of Spain. You say, indeed. Well, one of the great things about coming a, a becoming a Spanish citizen is you can suddenly add two European Cups and a World Cup to your <laughs> own personal um, <laughs> uh, trophy cabinet. But um, but no, seriously, uh, it's very strange that uh, that the Spanish national anthem has no words to it. There's only a handful of countries, I think three or four in the world that, um, that don't manage to write down something. Um, you know, uh, national anthems are normally rather sort of, uh, sticky, slightly sickly things. Treacly, I think of, you described the it. Treacly is the word that was, yes. Um, you know, full of sort of praise of our glorious past and our glorious present and, and how brilliant we are. Um, and Spain can't quite manage that. Um, and the reason is it simply doesn't agree enough on its own history, uh, to do that. So it prefers to sort of remain silent or at least just hum along, which is what uh, our sportsmen do at international events. And, and you know, in many ways, that is odd because as, as the, the, this book demonstrates, I mean, Spain is a, is, as a country is somewhere that has existed pretty much in, in, its, in its present format for almost longer than any other country, certainly any other country in, in Europe. Well, indeed, as far as frontiers are concerned, you could say that we're sort of, you know, a good 500 years old. Um, the trouble comes when you start trying to work out what happened within those frontiers and to, and to what extent Spain was a single country or a, a, a country made up of different nations or a sort of plurinational entity. These are the discussions we're still having now about Catalonia, about the Basque country, 
And, uh, and in fact, they're one of the reasons why, um, uh, we don't have a national anthem, uh, that set looked at from the outside, Spain has been around for a very long time. Uh, it's had a huge impact on the world. Um, you know, ever since in 1492, uh, Columbus sailed across and, uh, and began this sort of new era, era of the, what I call the Atlanticization of the of the, of the world, um, you know, the Spanish impact has been huge you know, the empire, uh, survived for almost four centuries. And, um, and as a result, you know, the Western world, Western culture, uh, the presence of Christianity, the presence of the Spanish language, uh, in so many parts of the world is obviously down to, you know, little old up. <laughs> And it, it is something that you do at the beginning. You lay out these three really significant areas of, of cultural influence, both incoming and outgoing, that that the Iberian Peninsula of, of Spain and Portugal has, that uh, it's rooted to Europe uh, in the Pyrenees. Um, it's where the Mediterranean meets the Atlantic. Uh, you can see Africa from the beaches of Tarifa, something I've, I've done myself. Um, yeah. and, and from the northwestern coast, you have... Have what you describe as these circular winds that that as you described just there that that carried columbus uh, to the americas and back yes well uh, you know one of the great uh, collections of spanish art is actually in new york in the hispanic society and there's a show going to be on at the royal academy in london uh, shortly and just today i've been writing for the um for the Academy's uh, magazine and, and just remembering, um, exactly that, you know, when you start looking at, uh, Spanish artifacts, when you start trying to untangle prehistory, classical history, uh, medieval history, um, and on into the, you know, modern and contemporary eras, there's always. It's never just Spain. It's never just Europe. There's always something else happening, um, coming in from the Mediterranean civilizations, uh, you know, Rome, Greece, the Phoenicians, uh, the Carthaginians are all, are all here during the classical period. There are sort of traces of all kinds of, uh, of cultures uh, in prehistory that come from Africa, that come from the far end of the Mediterranean, so from Asia and, and from Europe as well. And of course, as soon as, uh, that first journey is made across the Atlantic, um, then a whole other factor kicks in and, um, you know, we can talk on a more global scale and think about the Columbine, uh, the Columbian exchange of, um, of, uh, of plants and animals and diseases and all these amazing things that happened, um, partly because of Spain and partly to Spain, because Spain just sort of happens to be, I call it a pivot. It's a sort of pivot point where these things, um, where these things pass through and sometimes Spain itself is simply sort of pushed around by by what I call these winds that blow in and sometimes itself is doing the pushing 
and and changing the world as it goes along. Yeah, I, I found that fascinating. Actually, this this idea that that you stake out that Spain is one of the cornerstones of of Europe, but it it is, as you say, also one of its great pivots. And and some of those pivots are truly remarkable. That I mean, you get the examples that you give include the return to Europe of Greek thought after the early Middle Ages, as you said there, for better or worse, the voyages of Christopher Columbus, exporting the the modern Western novel invented by Cervantes, but then a lot of the darker elements as well, expelling its Sephardic Jews, uh, its own Muslims, instituting the Spanish Inquisition, the first enslaved people sent to the Americas traveled on Spanish ships, as as did some of the last. So so that it, it's, it's a remarkable legacy for better, better or worse, isn't it? Indeed it is. I sort of divide the, 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 the history of Spain into a sort of before 1492, uh, which of course is when Columbus <laughs> uh, goes across the ocean. It's also I thought you were going to say sailed the ocean Spain blue. <laughs> no, no. Uh, but uh, when the Jews are, uh, are also expelled, when, they, when the, uh, the Moorish, the Muslim uh, kingdoms of Spain are finally reduced after, what, eight centuries of, uh, of Muslim history and domination in, uh, for a large period of, of Spain. And so you have this period where Spain is this very busy mixture and then as from 1492, you have this sort of long-running attempt to reinvent itself as a pure Christian uh, country. Other, it has to be said, other European nations, uh, countries were quite shocked by Spain in the, in the late 15th century and early 16th century because it still visibly had, um, uh, you know, large minorities of Jews, large minorities of uh, Muslims or of Muslim converts who still dressed and secretly, um, you know, worshipped like, like Muslims. And so Spain then goes into this sort of period of, of trying to sort of create a pure version of itself, which is obviously very Christian, very, very Catholic. Uh, and the Inquisition of course is, is part of that, but again, that mixes with this idea of Spanish exceptionalism, that the reason Spain has this massive empire is simply because God wills it, that you know, God realizes that, that Spaniards are the people who should be going out there and ruling the world and changing the world uh, uh, for the better. And so those sort of two things, I think like all sort of dreams of national exceptionalism and we're two uh, people of British origin speaking at the moment. so. We can do this, um, um, uh, you know, eventually hit, hit, hit the buffers at some stage. You can't be, you know, the greatest nation on earth forever and ever and ever. And, um, and Spain sort of last, certainly its last 200 years of history have very much been what I call post-imperial trying to come to terms with the fact that, you know, you are no longer the spectral ones. And and you do seem to uh, get these constant paradoxes between the different experiences. And I mean, you argue that Spain is at its best when it embraces its cross-cultural influences and, and identities. But, you know, there's there's nothing more striking. I, re I remember as a tourist going to somewhere like the Alhambra Palace 
and the fact that it still exists, that it stands there next to the uh, to the uh, to the the building that that Philip II built for himself, uh, and yet the Alhambra wasn't bulldozed, it wasn't raised to the ground. It was recognised as as a jewel of Spanish heritage, uh, despite coming from a, a different tradition to that of Philip. So th those kind of paradoxes seem to be woven into Spain's very history. Indeed, and and you're right. It's curious the way that there's the, uh, there was always an appreciation, especially you know in the years of the, the Reconquista, those eight centuries when the when the um, Christians were slowly pushing south and pushing the Muslims uh, out of Spain. And there's always, you know, moments of spectacular delight when they arrive in a new city and can finally occupy one of these great uh, buildings. It might be um, uh, Galambo, or it might be the Alcazares in, in Seville. Uh, which they've only seen from a distance or they've heard about or their envoys have, have gone to, and they really, you know, want it and, and, and appreciate it and, in fact, spend a lot of money later on um, sort of conserving these uh, these places. I mean, one of the results of all this kind of toing and throwing all these flows of different peoples through Spain is that, you know, we're saturated with monuments um, you know, there are, there are, I'm constantly amazed by, you know, these small towns you can go to, or even villages where you will discover, you know, in a place with 200, 300 inhabitants, they have, you know, a medieval castle and a Jewish graveyard and a Muslim, this or that, and, a and, a and a Gothic, um, something else. And, um, you know, I mean, Spain, Spain has a sort of. Uh, a delightful problem, which is, you know, how do you after all these things? And it, I mean, it, it is also in the the book is an opportunity for you to revisit some of the things you've written on before. I mean, Isabella, for example, of Isabella and Ferdinand fame, um, and there, you know, there's some wonderful moments in the book. Uh, for example, where you see her elbowing the former king's daughter out of the way to uh, to seize the throne. So th there's, a, there's a lot in here about the kind of the viciousness of, of Spanish politics and dynasties and so on. Yes, well, there are a lot of uh, exceptional monarchs along, uh, along, along, the, along the way. Um, uh, Isabella of Castile, obviously, is one of them that's, you know, incredibly a powerful 15th century queen regnant, uh, you know, really the first of the great queens regnant of, of, of Europe. We think of, I don't know, Victoria and, uh, and first Elizabeth of, uh, uh, of England or, 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 or in Russia. Um, uh, but actually when you look at, uh, Isabel and you try and find Isabel, when you look at Isabel and you try and find who her role models might have been, you know, the page is empty. There are no other great queen regnants in 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 Europe before her, not with that much, not with that much power. So she really has to um, has to make it up. And you know, I mean, there are always arguments about whether history is about individuals or or sort of huge cultural and social and social flows. I like to think of it as a, as a mixture of both things, and there are moments where exceptional individuals turn up and you know, and change the the 
the course of history, just as you can, you know, change the flow of a river by dropping a rock in it. Um, and, uh, and Isabella, uh, together with Ferdinand, it has to be said, um, is certainly, certainly one of those people. Let's, let's talk about one of those individuals from the 20th century, uh, Franco, who remains controversial uh, to this day. I mean, kind of when you talk about that, that, those movement of ideas, but also of individuals, you, at one stage you describe Franco as being part of the clash of global ideology is what's going on in, in Spain. There. How, how, do you, how do you assess his legacy? Uh, how, do, how do you assess uh, Franco, the civil war, but also his, his period? of rule well it's funny because i'm now actually working on a on a new biography of franco which is forcing <laughs> me to, to think very very hard about all this and um i'm sort of coming to the conclusion that actually two things are happening at the same time one is we have this sort of um century the 20th century is the the century of the great clash of 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 ideologies where uh you know we have communism we have fascism and sort of uh as one historian wag once put it you know where fascism fights communism and capitalism wins um um but in spain that meets also this sort of long term this long period post empire period where Spain is bitterly inward looking, asking itself what's gone wrong, you know, trying to deal with this idea of its own exceptionalism. And, uh, and Franco in many ways is the sort of, is the death throes of that. It's like a sort of, I, I don't know, it's like the, the final, uh, uh death throw of a, of a, of a, of a, of a dying body. It's the last attempt to sort of recreate Spain as, as the sort of imperial dreamland. Um, and, um, it's almost the sort of necessary end to a process so that Spain can then start again afresh in 1975 when he dies and it becomes, you know, a functioning democracy and everything, uh, starts to, starts to, starts to look up again. So Franco is at once both very Spanish in that sense, uh, and in the, in the personal sense, because his own family sort of represents these two tent, this tension in Spain, one between his very liberal sort of progressive father, but dictatorial in, in his sort of attitude, patriarchal in his attitude to the family and his very sort of pious Catholic conservative mother. They actually represent these two strands uh, in Spanish history who've been clashing by that stage for a good century or more. Um, and at the same time, uh, you know, the ideologies, fascism in, uh, in Franco's case are sort of providing a kind of moral support to, we say, or, or an, uh, a political weight to, um, to something which is already happening in, in Spain and can just sort of latch onto these, onto these, uh, 
new ideas that appear. And and what about uh, King Juan Carlos? You mentioned the transition to democracy there. It was it was very striking at Queen Elizabeth's funeral that uh, the Spanish media were tying themselves in knots about his presence at the funeral, the, the meeting with his son, the current king, and so on. What becomes clear from your book, the disgraced figure perhaps that he is today, in the largest sweep of history, he's a huge figure and, it, and it's difficult to think of many dictators who actually hand over power voluntarily uh, and facilitate that kind of uh, transition to democracy. Indeed. Uh, I mean, Juan Carlos is very much and rightly in, in the dog hats at the moment for the various um, things that he's done, particularly financially. But you know, history will be very kind to him. History will be very kind to him because he was what I call the last king of Europe, or at least the last European king in the sense that 1975, uh, Franco uh, has already you know, appointed him as his successor and he is handed the powers of a dictator. And so rather like an absolutist monarch of the 18th century, he is suddenly you know, the most powerful an absolutely powerful person uh, in Spain who could reign like an old-fashioned monarch if we uh, if he wanted, but instead leads this process of transition to democracy, which is by no means as perfect and blood-free and sort of innocent uh, uh, in its in its uh, in its process as um, Spaniards often like like think about it, I mean, there's actually evidence increasingly of the king himself sort of, uh, let's say, manipulating the process to make sure that the Republicans don't do very well. Uh, there's uh, recently has come to light a, a letter where he's writing to the Shah of Iran saying, you know, we need money to fund the centre-right party because otherwise we'll have a bunch of Marxists, so please send cash. Please send cash. Uh, you know, has got has got him into into a lot of trouble later on in life. Um, though that sort of uh, sending of cash has been, you know, to him personally, uh, rather than the sort of processes in Spain. But frankly, even that doesn't matter because in in the broader, bigger picture, you know, Spain had struggled for 150, 200 years to find itself and to find its path, its future path. That's what it managed to do in those, in the, those first um, dozen years after, uh, after King Juan Carlos took over. And, you know, and much of the credit goes to him. There's no, there's just no, no escaping it. Um, so, you know, he will go down in history as, you know, a fundamental, uh, uh, person in the history of Spain who did, who basically did something very good, even at the, even if at the moment, you know, a lot of Spaniards, you know, do not like him and do not respect him.
And where do you think that that Spain stands today? I mean, when I, I look back to, for example, the financial crisis in 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 two thousand and eight and and so on, that that I know there was there was deep uh, anger and upset in Spain when uh, Spain was was lumped in with the the so called uh, pig countries, Portugal, Ireland, Greece, and Spain. Deeply offensive uh, term for those countries that was was seen to be economically. Uh, close to bankruptcy. Um, on the other hand, you have these kind of moments of great grandeur, I suppose in some ways coming, if we come back to football, symbolised by Spain winning the World Cup, the dominance of Real Madrid in in the Champions League and so on, although I don't know that's not uh, popular in all parts of Spain. Um, so, no, so, so, what, not in this house, but, uh, <laughs> so, so what is the uh, kind of what is the kind of the balance? Because on the one hand, you seem to have these these kind of moments of, of, of kind of humiliation. But on the other, this kind of this sense of Spain as a great country uh, and with this sense of grandeur, too. Well, I think now Spain is, you know, Firmly anchored as a European country, part of the of the European Union. That might sound sort of slightly dull and predictable, but dull and predictable is quite a good thing uh, in the sort of flow of flow of Spanish history. It's also you no know, predictable and and safe, um, and so it's been a great sort of moderating factor uh, in in Spanish politics. Um, I personally still feel, you know, that Spain can do a lot more, um, you know, we still have, um, uh, along with other countries in Southern Europe and the United Kingdom, we have a sort of a large, a large wealth gap, which, um, I think can probably be, be closed quite easily and advantageously to, you know, to the overall health and wealth of the, uh, uh, of the country. Um, but overall, you know, one of the beautiful things about democracy in Spain can say this because in its memory, it knows what it's like not to have it. Um, great thing about democracy is that you can, you know, have vigorous, you know, ideological punch-ups, but, but they're only verbal and they sort it out at the ballot box. And, um, uh, you know, and then you just, you just get on with it. Uh, Spaniards themselves have changed remarkably, uh, over the last 30 or 40 years. In many ways, it's a very liberal, progressive, uh, country liberal and socially liberal, but often people think of it as a sort of died in the wall, sort of hardcore, uh, Roman Catholic nation tied to, you know, wedded to anything the Vatican says, but actually this is, you know, the country, one of the first countries to introduce uh, gay marriage with full rights, including adoption. Uh, recently, uh, we also became one of the first countries to introduce uh, a euthanasia, for example. Um, uh, so, you know, it's, uh, in that sense, it's embraced kind of social liberalism with very little effort and, um, and I'm hoping that in the long term, uh, it might need to tweak its education system considerably, but in the long term, you know, it still shows, um, 
still shows promise. And we've, I mean, you mentioned Southern European countries, EU countries there. I mean, in another large Mediterranean country, they've seen the victory of the uh, Italian right. Um, do you think, we, can we extrapolate anything out of that for Spain, do you think? Well, the victory of the Italian far right in, the, in, in this case sort of, I mean, it does pro provide a precedent in the sense that it sort of um, um, uh, just provides an example of, of it happening, perhaps sort of uh, cleanses a path that was, or breaks down, breaks open a path that was, was previously blocked by, you know, Europe's own uh, very damaging uh, experiences with, with fascism, which after all started, you know, conceptually uh, in Italy with, with Mussolini. Um, the trouble is in Spain, although we do now have, um, uh, and it's quite a recent phenomenon, we have a, a far right party, an extreme right party in, in Vox. Um, I don't see Spain sort of embracing wildly, um, wildly fringe ideological causes that I think, you know, Spanish democracy, we might see this happening in Italy too. Actually, you know, in the end, uh, it's what changes the far right rather than the other way around. Uh, it tames the far right when it sees that, you know, all this, um, that a lot of what it's, uh, what said in moments of passionate anger becomes sort of ridiculously impossible when you're, when you're, uh, when you're in government and, um, you know, hopefully that would, is what will happen in Italy. Uh, I think it would almost certainly happen, happen in Spain. You really won't find politicians, uh, on the far right standing up and defending and defending the dictatorship of Francisco Franco, certainly not in, not in public. They might say, well, you know, the economy did very well, uh, which is certainly true about the end period of Francoism, but then the economy did very well all across uh, Southern Europe at exactly the same time. So even that doesn't really work as, uh, as an argument, you know, Spaniards have enjoyed democracy so much and all the freedoms it's brought, but they're in a way they're still inoculated against, um, uh, dangerous experiments, uh, on the far right of the the spectrum probably on the far left of the spectrum too actually is 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 the greater danger do you think for spain that it, it may break up that separatist movements may uh, try to force the issue no i don't i don't think it is actually um uh spaniards wherever they are whether they're catalans or catalans who don't define themselves as spaniards or basques or or galicians who don't define themselves as spaniards the one thing they'd certainly define themselves as is European citizens. Um, and as, you know, British citizens know after Brexit, you know, once your country, uh, leaves, you lose that citizenship. And if Catalonia chose to leave Spain, um, then the people of Catalonia would lose their European citizenship because it's Spain that's the member of the European Union, not Catalonia. Catalonia would have to go, go off, apply on its own and start all over again and may always be blocked by Spain, for example, um, or not it would certainly spend a long time, a long period of time outside the union and, 
uh, and this is the sort of irony of the situation. Catalans are not really allowed to vote on independence because the constitution makes that incredibly difficult. Um, but because they can't vote, they never have a proper debate about what it would mean. And if they did have a proper debate about what, what it meant, I think, um, you know, the vast majority of them wouldn't want it anyway. So the debate is sort of slightly false because it's really about an option that doesn't exist and that if it did exist, wouldn't become nearly as attractive. And finally, Giles, we started with football or what our American listeners would call soccer. Uh, so let's let's end there. Neither team is playing particularly well at the moment, but if it turns out that Spain are playing England in the final of the World Cup in December, which shirt are you going to be wearing? Oh, well, I think, uh, you know, I've, um, I, I've sworn loyalty to the, um, uh, to the Spanish, uh, to the Spanish state. <laughs> I never had to do that because I was born, born Bridget. I've never had to swear anything in that sense. And I would have to go with Spain on the train. Yeah. There we go. So the book is Espana, A Brief History of Spain. It's written by my guest, Giles Tremlett, and published by Bloomsbury. But for now, Giles, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you very much, Richard. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Damien Marusic. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.